This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 12th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you, Christ. Grace, peace, and joy to each of you this day through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. So I've been at Trinity Seminary and Healthy Congregations now for 10 years. So it's been a while since I've taught confirmation. It's one of the things I really miss. That's true. And um, But when I was teaching confirmation for 8th and 9th graders, which I did for 19 years, um, I would include something that I referred to always as the Jesus Film Festival as part of the curriculum. And what I would do is pick, and I love movies, so I would pick... Um, sections of various movies and show them, and then we would talk about them. Um, you know, uh, movies like uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and um, Oh God with George Burns, if you remember that. And uh, actually, Robin Williams' movie, The Fisher King, is one of the most brilliant stories about grace and forgiveness um, that I've ever seen. You have to be careful about what what clips you show to 8th and ninth graders, however. But I always have liked Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks is kind of an uh, institution in comedic history and television history. And I have to admit, I love movies. I'd watch them all day and all night if I had, didn't have to work. Um, but um, there's something, though, about telling stories and sharing them with humor and with visuals that help us dig deep, uh, deeply and differently into what it means to develop what we believe in. So does anyone remember the movie, The History of the World, Part 1? Remember? <laughs> Mel Brooks movie. And it's a wonderful interpretation of the passing on of the Ten Commandments, not the Charlton Heston version the Mel Brooks version. So we see um, Moses descending from on high on Mount Sinai, and he's juggling three tablets, not two, 
He's got them in his arms, and we see that each of they show. Each of the tablets has five commandments on them. Hmm. Not every eighth grader catches that. And so the it goes like this: Hear me, oh hear me, all pay heed. This Moses and in the movie says, "The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these fifteen, and then one tablet falls and shatters. And this perplexed Moses looks down and sees that and mutters a stereotypical "oi," and then says, "Um." Ten commandments for all to obey. So, you know, that leads to a good bit of discussion. First, what Scripture does say about the handing on of the tablets of the covenant, yeah? Uh, And then some imagining about what would have happened if Moses was a klutz and what might be part of those lost five commandments. So what would you nominate as a commandment that you would add to God's perfect ten? you have any? You can tell me in the narthex afterwards if you have some thoughts about this. This summer, during the weeks of my vacation, I took the month of July, actually, off completely. And Bob and I conspired, it's my spouse, we conspired to take seriously the possible hoarding disorder that we have. Now, I I don't think we're worthy of the reality show Buried Alive, but we came to realize that our basement has been home to things that we have held on to too much and too long. Some of which would be wonderful things to pass on to others, um, for others to use and care for, some of them worthy of the recycling bin. And we com- were committed to dealing with the stuff that we've accumulated over the 10 years that we've been here in Columbus. So we cleaned and we cleared and we actually painted and we also reminisced as we went through things. I'm very big into reminiscing. Bob is not. But I couldn't help wonder about whether a lost commandment might have been Do not pay homage to accumulation and the temptation to hold on to things that distract. Do not pay homage to accumulation and the temptation to hold on to things that distract. Our culture of too much is never enough believes in accumulating no matter what the cost is to people, to the environment, or even to our souls. In today's gospel, Jesus specifically warns all his disciples about the inherent dangers of hoarding. The scribes accumulate and parade their piety, and instead of working to examine and explain the daily importance of the Torah for pious, observant Jews, these scribes seem to be all about a certain kind of walk that demonstrates access and power and connection that only certain people can have. So Jesus was denouncing the ostentatious behavior of these scribes, but he was also not just denouncing something that was unique to this particular group of people and to first century Judaism. Instead, he was exposing a common self-centeredness that pervades everywhere among all people. 
it's the urge to comfort ourselves by accumulating stuff I like to refer to as retail therapy. It's stronger than ever today in our consumer, commercial, and celebrity-centered culture. Those are a lot of C's. The scribes whom Jesus accuses of devouring widows' houses were hoarding. They were taking advantage of those who were the most vulnerable to add to their own idea of what God's message to the world is, their own status and power, their own place. Well, I'm sure none of us can think of examples in the 21st century about people behaving that way, right? There's nothing like that, and certainly it's not me that does it. You think about the CEOs who bail out with a golden parachute while hundreds of employees lose their jobs. Our uh, international investors who who reap huge profits in other countries without concern for the lives of the laborers that they exploit. No matter how many houses or shoes or boxes of things we keep for ourselves, it's never enough. We are insatiable because we're only thinking about what makes us secure, us happy, us comforted, us calm down immediately. And, and that way our view is always in the mirror, not at how Jesus points us to a life committed to God and serving the people of the world as a result of Jesus' gift to us. You know, it's interesting, I think that the main character, you know, the scribes are characters, but the most important character in our gospel is that widow. Widows were, uh, in addition to people who were very ill in some way, but widows were probably some of the most vulnerable people in first century Judaism in Palestine. It's interesting that it's a widow, this vulnerable person who seems to be immune to the urge to keep what she has for and to herself. Her faith is not in anything she has or doesn't have. She gives away this tiny amount she does possess because it doesn't possess her and it doesn't hold her heart or her hopes. No, we have um, a variation on the on the golden rule in our in our family in our home, and um, you know the golden rule says, "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." So our family variation is, "Don't hit," and if you hit, you get hit. Don't hit back. The grown-up version is, "When someone has treated you with disdain, disrespect, or disregard, don't multiply it." When someone has treated you with disdain, disrespect, or disregard, don't multiply it. So the moment that Jesus arrived at the temple in Jerusalem and began teaching, he was slammed by the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees each took shots of disdain, disrespect, and disregard. And you notice uh, in the stories about Jesus, how does Jesus respond? He, he, he throws people off balance. He asks questions. He pushes things back. They, can't argue, they couldn't argue with his, with his responses or his answers. He never took advantage. He never did back what was done to him. When Jesus was confronted with that life and death issue of the woman accused of adultery, you know, he not only refused to disdain, disrespect, and disregard, he put responsibility for their own stuff right back on them when he said, 
Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. I have a fascination, along with with movies, with uh, studies and research on the natural world. And my go-to book right now, it's in my briefcase, if you want to see it, is uh, written by a National Geographic author by the name of Peter Miller. And the title of the book is The Smart Swarm. And uh, in that book is a, a, a series of research about the behavior of locusts and termites and birds and bees. And he makes a parallel with human behavior between all these, these creatures. He, he discusses in one chapter about the impact of going along with the crowd among humans or watching others and just doing what they do so that we can be a part of it, we can have friends, maybe influence people, and mostly not go it alone. And Miller observes that standing ovations, if you've ever been in a crowd where that happened, um, function somewhat the same way. Often all it takes for there to be a standing ovation is for a couple people to stand up. You know, it's, it's happened to me too. I look around. Oh, they're standing. I guess I should get with the program here. And the experience of being in a crowd so influences people that they stand to, no matter their personal perspective or whether the game or the concert is at the level of an ovation. Miller says that we can learn much that's helpful for us about observing swarms in the natural world. We can add something of great value to an organization, a culture, a church, by bringing something authentic and original to the table. Us. Something that springs from our unique experience and skills. Not by blindly copying others, taking advantage of others, or by ignoring our better instincts. He states that at times that means, excuse me, paying our fair share, sacrificing for the good of the group, accepting the way things are, standing up for what we believe, lobbying for a cause, or refusing to go along with the crowd. So very different options. So the widow, like Jesus, didn't offer disdain, disrespect, or disregard. She did not do back to others, as her experience of first century Jewish culture might expect of her. Instead, she offered back to God herself, her time, and her precious life-giving resources. Signs that indeed she had absorbed that very first commandment on that very first tablet carried by Moses Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And she demonstrated, actually, her own version of the golden rule. Give what you have so that your, so that your neighbors might live. So we move toward the end in these closing weeks of the church year. We've begin, been given a number of ways to reimagine how to consider what it means to keep God in Jesus at our center, as our widow in the gospel does today. No matter the pain, the change, the avoidance, the confusion, the hoarding that may be part of our experience. This congregation has experienced a quick and unexpected change in pastoral leadership in the last week. You're in an in-between time, too, because your lead pastor returns from a lengthy sabbatical next week. 
And all of that creates confusion and lots of questions. It's, it's a stunning reminder, I think, of the reality that we live in a broken world where not all relationships work and where congregations don't have perfect missions and ministries and where the reality of the gifts given to us by God and others can be hidden and can be experienced as hurtful and filled with pain. And that every little or big thing that we experience is a chance to make sense of what we believe. It's a widow's might challenge. These weeks are not going to be easy. Your ability to bring your best to the community, to be your authentic selves, to be a smart swarm, as Peter Miller refers to, that means a community not only accepting all, but willing to confront the imperfections of a life of faith and face it with grace and grits and honesty is really vital for everyone that's a part of this faith community that's connected to it. This congregation's mission gets embodied in the relationships that you have and that you share with one another, but it's not just that. Your congregation mission, congregation's mission points to something beyond you and is a light to the world about who and whose you are. So I sat in the seminary chapel this past Wednesday. We meet for Eucharist each Wednesday. And we celebrated All Saints Day because we're not together on Sundays. We're all deployed in various places. And I cried through the litany of the saints, sobbed. So I knew I sort of, sort of expected it, but I didn't come equipped to chapel with my normal equipment that's part of being a Rawlings Ott child. I usually have Kleenex in my pockets, and for whatever reason, I wasn't equipped for the challenge at that time. So I remembered throughout the litany both of my parents, especially my father who died on Thanksgiving Day in 2014, just almost a year ago. And he, and she, he was included in the litany. And my mother died at a a young age. She uh, died quickly with no warning while I was a teenager. So she was gone. But she's always here and here. My father lived until he was just two weeks short of 89. He's gone now. But he's always here and here. I would have rather had both parents with me until they were as old as Moses. But that wasn't what happened. I gave thanks on Wednesday for what they were able to share with me for whatever time we had. They gave me their widow's might, gifts, gratitude and faith and hope, lots of courage and love. Not something to hoard, but destined to share. Those embodied gifts never, ever go away even when they're tinged with sadness, with anger, loss, and confusion. They're always there. Perhaps the story of Jesus and the widow and our lives as disciples of Jesus in this day and time point back to that first tablet fully intact in the history of the world, part one. It really is not about all the stuff that we've accumulated in our lives. 
It's not about the pride of being excellent or unique or privileged with a special mission. It's about the basics. To love God with all our hearts and all our soul and all our minds and our strengths. And to share that love with and for the world. Amen.